0: KSQD thanks The Opening, a center for courses in writing for supporting story behind the story on Talk of the Bay. The Opening offers classes, book completion groups, and writing retreats in Santa Cruz and online, led by award-winning local writer Andy Couturier, author of The Abundance of Less. More information at theopening.org or 831-728-9983. Thank you, The Opening, for supporting community radio, Ksquid 90.7 FM. You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, Many Voices, Community Radio. Welcome to Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel. Today, I'm sharing a recording of a live conversation I had with Carmen Maria Machado at Kepler's Books on February 1st. This event was hosted by Kepler's Literary Foundation and produced by Amber Clark. Carmen Maria Machado is the author of the sparklingly surreal short story collection Her Body and Other Parties, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and a winner of the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize. Her memoir, In the Dream House, was named Best Book of the Year in 2019 by just about every major media outlet, including The New Yorker, Time Magazine, The New York Times, NPR, Entertainment Weekly. The Atlantic, The Paris Review, and Vogue. It is a bold, captivating account of the violence and abuse Machado endured in her first relationship with another woman, told in her inimitable voice. And it's the subject of our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here's Carmen Maria Machado.
1: Hello, everybody. Hi. Um, All right. I guess I'll just read, and then we'll talk, which is what you just said. Dream house as luck of the draw. Part of the problem was, as a weird fat girl, you felt lucky. She did what you'd wished a million others had done, looked past arbitrary markers of social currency and seen your brain and ferocious talent and quick wit and pugnacious approach to assholes. When you first started writing about fatness a long time ago in your live journal, a commenter said to you that you were pretty and smart and charming, but as long as you were Zofteg, you'd never have your choice of lovers. You remember feeling outrage and then processing the reality, the practicality of what he'd said. You were so angry at the world. You wondered when she came along if this is what most people got to experience in their lives, a straight line from want to satisfaction, desire manifested and satisfied in reasonable succession. This had never been the case before. It had always been fraught. How many times had you said, if I just looked a little different, I'd be drowning in love? Now you get to drown without needing to change a single cell. Lucky you. Dream House as Bluebeard. Bluebeard's greatest lie was that there was only one rule. The newest wife could do anything she wanted, anything, as long as she didn't do that single arbitrary thing, didn't stick that tiny, inconsequential key into that tiny, inconsequential lock. But we all know that was just the beginning, a test. She failed and lived to tell the tale, as I have. But even if she'd passed, even if she'd listened, there'd have been some other request, a little larger, a little stranger. And if she kept going, kept allowing herself to be trained like a corset fanatic, pinching her waist smaller and smaller, There'd have been a scene where Bluebeard danced around with the rotting corpses of his past wives clasped in in his arms, and the newest wife would have sat there mutely, suppressing growing horror, swallowing the egg of vomit that bobbed behind her breastbone. And then later, another scene in which he did unspeakable things to the bodies, women, they'd once been women, and she just stared dead into the middle distance, seeking a purgatory where she could live forever. Some scholars believe that Bluebeard's Bluebeard is a symbol of his supernatural nature, easier to accept than being brought to heel by a simple man. But isn't that the joke? He can be simple and he doesn't have to be a man. Because she hadn't blinked at the key and its conditions, hadn't paused when he told her her footfalls were too heavy for his liking, hadn't protested when he fucked her while she wept, hadn't declined when he suggested that she stop speaking, Hadn't said a word when he left bruises on her arms. Hadn't scolded him for speaking to her like she was a dog or a child. Hadn't run screaming down the path from the castle into the village, pleading with someone to help, help, help. It made logical sense that she sat there and watched him spinning around the body of wife number four, its decaying head flopping backward on a hinge of flesh. This is how you are toughened, the newest wife reasoned. This is where the tenacity of love is practiced, its tensile strength, its durability. You are being tested, and you are passing the test. Sweet girl, sweet self, look how good you are, look how loyal, look how loved. Dream house as appetite. You make a mistake early on, though you don't know it at the time. You admit to her that you are constantly nursing low-grade crushes on many people in your life. Nothing acted on, just that you find many people attractive and do your best to surround yourself with smart and funny minds, and the result is a gooey, lovely space somewhere between Philia and Eros. You've been this way as long as you can remember. You've always found this quirk of your personality to be just that, a quirk, and she laughs and says she's charmed by it. Over the course of your relationship, she will accuse you of fucking or wanting to fuck or planning to fuck the following people. Your roommate, your roommate's girlfriend, dozens of your friends, the clarion class you haven't even met yet, a dozen of her friends, not a few of her colleagues at Indiana, her ex-girlfriend, her ex-boyfriend, your ex-boyfriends, several of your teachers, the director of your MFA program, several of your students, one of your doctors, and in perhaps the most demented moment of this exercise, her father. Also an untold litany of strangers, people on the subway and in coffee shops, waiters at restaurants, store clerks and grocery store cashiers and librarians and ticket takers and janitors and museum goers and beach sleepers. The problem with denial sounds like confession to her and so the burden of proof is forced upon you. To show that you have not been fucking those people, you become adept at doing searches on your phone, providing evidence that you haven't been in contact with anyone. You stop talking about a promising student in one of your classes because she becomes fixated on the idea that you have a crush on a 19-year-old who has just learned how to balance exposition and scene. One day, as she rubs her fingers over you and you close your eyes in pleasure, she grabs your face and twists it toward her. She gets so close to you you can smell something sour on her breath. Who are you thinking about, she says. It's phrased like a question, but it isn't. Your mouth moves, but nothing comes out. And she squeezes your jaw a little harder. Look at me when I fuck you, she says. You pretend to come. Dream House as the River Lathe. Later that fall, she asks you to join her at the Harvard-Yale football game. It is a favorite tradition of hers, and she has flown there for the occasion, but has to be back in Indiana earlier than expected. If you drive there, you can bring me back, she says. And so you drive from Iowa to Connecticut to meet her. And so after a day of autumn temperatures and flask sips and people in furs and bottles of champagne rolling around on the muddy ground like Budweiser cans, you sleep hard in an uncomfortable hotel bed. The next afternoon, you prepare to leave. She is a reckless driver. Nothing has changed since that trip to Savannah. And so you get behind the wheel of your car without asking. You pull away from New Haven, alternating between the radio, conversation, and silence. You scoot down through Connecticut and New York. In Pennsylvania, the light drops away early and rain glosses the pavement. Somewhere in the middle of the endless, hilly length of this state, the one you'd grown up in, she interrupts herself mid-sentence. Why won't you let me drive, she asks. Her voice is controlled, measured like a dog whose tail has gone rigid. Nothing is happening, but something is wrong. I'm okay driving, you say. You're tired, she says, too tired to drive. I'm not, you say, and you aren't. You're too tired, and you're going to kill us, she says. You hate me. You want me to die. I don't hate you, you say. I don't want you to die. You hate me, she says, her voice going up half an octave with every syllable. You're going to kill us and you don't even care. You selfish bitch. I, you selfish bitch. She begins to pound the dashboard. You selfish bitch, you selfish bitch, you selfish. You pull off at the next exit and park at a gas station. She throws open the passenger door even before the car stops moving and stalks around the parking lot like a teenage boy trying to cool down before he punches a wall. You sit in the driver's seat, watching her pace. The urge to cry is present, but far off, like you're high. When she starts walking back toward the car, her eyes fixed on you, you hastily unbuckle your seatbelt and run to the passenger's side. You don't want her to leave without you, and you're not sure she won't. Afterward, the drive is framed by wet, dark mountains. You remember going through Pennsylvania around Christmas the year before and seeing 18 wheelers overturned on the side of these same roads, their engine blocks blackened by extinguished fires. And cars too on the highway's shoulder, casually burning. She goes 80, 90 miles per hour, and you have to look away from the climbing needle. The shadowy shapes of deer pass in front of you through curtains of rain. I am going to die, you think. You pray for a cop to pull you over, watching the side mirror for blue and red lights that never appear. You clutch the door when she accelerates and when the car whips weightlessly over a hill. Stop that, she says, and goes even faster. Sleep, she commands, but you cannot sleep. Midnight comes. You enter Ohio, a state you've always found very boring to drive across, but now your adrenaline makes your hands tremble in your lap. You drive past dead animals by the dozens, raccoons blasted apart by speeding tires, deer whose muscular animal bodies are contorted like that of fallen dancers. The rain slows and then stops, and you enter Indiana. In the final stretch, when she exits the main highway and takes a two-lane country road south to Bloomington, the car begins to yawn to the left, kissing the double line, surpassing it, and then to the right, where the door passes within inches of a metal barrier. When you look over the back of her skull, is touching the headrest, her eyes closed, you bark her name, and the car writes itself. "Now Now you're too tired, you say. You're falling asleep. Please let me do it. We're almost there. You've never been so awake. I'm fine, she says. My body is my bitch. I can make it do whatever I want. Please pull over. She curls her lip but doesn't say anything else and doesn't stop. Every so often, the car swerves. You pass a religious billboard that asks if you know where you'll go after death. In full daylight, this sort of propaganda would make you roll your eyes, but now it tugs on an old childhood fear and you whimper and then try too late to swallow the sound. When you first came to Bloomington, when you helped her find the dream house, it was impossibly bright. It was late spring and the trees were electric, new growth, neon green. Now the leaves burn in red and orange and brown ones spiral away from the branches. The season is dying and you will die too, you are certain, this night. The car pulls into the driveway around four in the morning and sits there in silence. You feel like you're going to throw up. The leaves drop onto the car's roof and the wind snatches them away with a papery scrape. Finally, she reaches to unbuckle her seatbelt, but you are watching the lawn. Two dark shapes are crossing it, like dogs, but not coyotes. It would have been a lovely sight at any time, but in contrast to the night's terrors, it is so beautiful your face tangles. Look, you say softly, pointing. She starts as if you've struck her. Then she sees what you see. You wait for her coo, for her sweetness. Fuck you, she says. She leans towards you and speaks directly into your ear. You say look without saying anything else. I think you're fucking out pointing out someone is going to fucking kill us. It's the middle of the night. What the fuck is wrong with you? She kicks open the car door. The coyotes bolt for the trees. You watch her stomp through the dream house. Her silhouette is thrown up against a series of illuminated windows, kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, and then all the lights go out. You get out of the car and sit against the side of the house, putting on your winter coat backward like a smock. The coyotes come back after a while, trotting casually across the lawn. Deer, too, and foxes, all paying you no mind, as if you were part of the scenery, as if you aren't there at all. You could go to bed, too. Or you could sit in the table in the kitchen and watch the scene from behind the windowpane. but that, you think, would be big, putting this night in a museum, removed, too soon forgotten. Sit with this, you think. Do not forget this is happening. Tomorrow you are going to push this away. But here, remember. Your butt goes numb in the grass. The lawn is a theater of wildlife. Your little car, stalwart as any stallion, sits silent and bright in the driveway, finally cooling down after her long drive. Birds titter early morning morse code from the trees. A gaggle of drunk students crest the hill at the edge of the golf course and stand there looking at you, perhaps believing you to be a ghost, before shuffling down onto the street. And in the same way the wrist rotates faster just before the latch is about to release, the pre-dawn night speeds up a little before the day comes. And though it would not be until the next summer solstice that you be free from her, though you would spend the season's precipitous drop into darkness alongside her. On this morning, light seeps into the sky and you are present with your body and your mind and you do not forget. In the morning, the woman who made you ill with fear brews a pot of coffee and jokes with you and kisses you and sweetly scratches your scalp like nothing has happened. And as though you'd slept, a new day begins again. I just got one more. Dreamhouse is natural disaster. I get bad heartburn. It's the Zoloft which takes the edge off my anxiety, but brings along a bunch of awful side effects like a good friend who can't shed a bad lover. Every so often I take my nightly meds and within a few minutes feel as though a hot poker has been shoved down my esophagus. I chew antacids and walk to the bathroom. Often the pain or the force of the neutralization makes me vomit. I become functionally everyone's favorite science fair project. When I bend over the toilet, I think a lot about how my heart is a volcano, like that quote from Khalil Gibran, it's dumb, but it moved me. And I wrote it down on a post-it note I stuck on my desk. If your heart is a volcano, how shall you expect flowers to bloom in your hands? It stayed there until a bad day, working on this book, when I suddenly load the quote with every ember of my being and crumpled it up and threw it away. Reader: Do you remember that ridiculous movie with Volcano, the one with Tommy Lee Jones? Do you remember how they stopped the eruption in the middle of downtown Los Angeles? Do you guys remember this movie? Have you seen this movie? <laughs> they diverted it with cement roadblocks and pointed fu- oh. And pointed fire hoses at it and rerouted the lava to the ocean and everything was fine. Sweet reader, that is not how lava works. Anyone can tell you that. Here's the truth. I keep waiting for my anger to go dormant, but it won't. I keep waiting for someone to reroute my anger into the ocean, but no one can. My heart is closer to Dante's Peak of Dante's Peak. My anger dissolves grandma's in acid lakes and raises quaint Pacific Northwest towns with ash and asphyxiates jet engines with its grit. Lava keeps leaking down my slopes. You should have listened to the scientist. You should have evacuated earlier. So, Khalil Gibran. I know what he's saying, but even rhetorically, he's making exactly the wrong point. The fact is, people settle near volcanoes because the resulting soil is extraordinary, dense with nutrients from the ash. In this dangerous place, their fruit is sweeter, their crops taller, their flowers more radiant, their yield more bountiful. The truth is, there's no better place to live than in the shadow of a beautiful, furious mountain. Thanks.
0: So I think we can all agree that you've done something amazing with the experiences that you have. But before we start and ask all sorts of questions about that, I just want to say I'm so sorry for everything she did to you. One of the things that caught my attention, uh, which is in the passage in uh, Dream House is the River Left, La- 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 but um, that I think you sort of glossed over briefly, So. If- it doesn't sound familiar. I'm sorry. Um, is the way that you annotate your story with motifs from fairy tales and myths? Mm.
1: Oh yeah, I don't. I don't read the footnotes when I. <laughs> what I do when I read out loud, but
0: yeah. Um, in addition to the chapter titles, there there are these footnotes sprinkled throughout, which reference these familiar genre tropes. Did seeing your experiences mirrored in folklore help you process what happened to you?
1: Uh, no, is the short version.
0: <laughs> um, nothing that I did writing this book helped me process anything that happened to
1: me. Um, I actually don't. I did not find writing this book cathartic in any way. Um, but I did find that the, the using folktale taxonomy as a way of sort of dividing up or sort of labeling a lot of the events in the book. I found it useful in the sense that, you know one of the really hard things about writing about domestic violence is that when you strip away the details that like sort of make each person you know, who are who they are, it, unfortunately, it, it follows a very predictable script and when you sort of know what you're looking for, it actually is very easy to identify and to sort of predict how things are gonna unfold. And so the challenge then becomes how do you write, cause you know, writing a memoir isn't just like recording what happened to you, it's turning something that happened to you into something beautiful and interesting, right? And then so the question is how do you make, what is essentially a cliche, like a large narrative cliche of the way that abusers function? how do you turn that into something interesting when it's like by itself, it's like this trope, right? And so I was thinking a lot about that and was really struggling with that. And I mean, I write about it explicitly in the book, but also there was a sort of moment um, where I was thinking a lot about folktale taxonomy and the way in which we label like folktales and fairy tales and stories that have been told across human history, right? Um, And how even amongst those stories, which like you know, have been like passed from person to person and like everyone leaves all their fingerprints all over them. And it is just this, these very like, these repeating tropes, these repeating ideas, like those stories have a lot to show us, right? And a lot to tell us about ourselves and who we have been and who we are gonna become. And so it actually became this like sort of way of encouraging myself a little bit. Like I found them very like promising in this interesting way that like even stories that are told over and over again have their own value. so yeah, so I just, and then it was also, also just like a lot of them read, like I loved reading these like, these, like this book, yeah. the Sis Thompson Index, and it was really interesting and really beautiful and really fun. Um, so yeah.
0: <laughs> you, you talk in the book about the way that our expectations or preconceptions about queer relationships, and particularly relationships between women, contribute to the silencing of narratives of domestic violence in those, among those people, and among those parties. What are those preconceptions and how do they prevent us from seeing the type of abuse that you experienced?
1: Well, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch. So, so one of the big ones that I talk about in the book, sort of the myth of the lesbian utopia.
0: Hmm.
1: And the way, I've been, the way I describe it is, you know, so I, I, am, I, am, I am a queer woman. I am married to, an, to another woman. My I, obviously patriarchy affects me in a lot of ways, but it's not in my house. Mm-hmm. Like when I, when I have my coffee in the morning, it's not like in my coffee. It's like I can drink <laughs> coffee without the patriarchy <laughs> being involved in any way, um, which is like really nice and is like a thing about being in a relationship with a woman that's actually kind of lovely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, there's more of that thought until <laughs> the end of my thought, but I it. <laughs> And but but so, but and, and, and there's something about that. I think that when, when, you, when you are experiencing that for the first time, when, if you were somebody who you've either already dated men or just you just a person who's like in the world with men, and then you suddenly realize that you can have this thing that like it's not in your house, right, I think it's this moment of like of joy, right? It's like your ability to just like have your coffee with no patriarchy in it, just like a moment of sort of <laughs> peace. And I think that the, and so I think there's like this, a lot of language around queer utopia. Where it's like, oh, it's so perfect, like we found this like perfect place. And like when I was doing research about the history of the conversation about domestic violence in lesbian communities, the the language that was used was often like the punctured dream, like the failed utopia. Like that was the language that kept getting used. And so so for me, so part of it is this idea that like lesbian relationships are by definition egalitarian, which like Mm -hmm. of course they're not, right? I mean they are in some ways and they aren't in others. And like You know, and so I feel like there's just like this language that has has been built up around especially lesbian relationships, but I think queer relationships in general that like actually sort of ignores a lot of how a lot of just human power dynamics exist in those relationships Um, or like other intersections of things like race and you know, all kinds of other stuff like that. So that's that's one of them. And also just the inability for us to conceive of women as violent um, or as potentially being potentially able to commit violence. it was really interesting. I found a lot of sort of historical accounts of, like there's this case I talk about, um, uh, oh my God, Alice and Frida, um, who were these young women around the, like in the sort of the uh, late 18th or 19th century, who were, who were like a couple and who were gonna run away and get married and then one of them, her mother like intercepted a letter and then kind of cut them off. And one day while she was in the carriage with her family, um, Frida was riding in the to their family, and Alice just showed up and slit her throat and killed her. Um, and when they interviewed her, like, the media didn't know what to do with itself. The media was like, it's like those romantic murders, but...
0: <laughs> you know, like they, like, they were sort of
1: like, but... Uh, like, Shruggy? Yeah, yeah. Like, there was a lot of, like, confusion about, like, what, like how do we think about this? How do we, you know, and, and trying to like sort of put language to a thing at the time that like didn't really have, there wasn't a lot of sort of structured language around it. Um, but just the idea of a woman committing that kind of violence was so, and was so publicly, like it wasn't even a question of if she did it or not. It was like, there were like eight witnesses, you know, and, and sort of, and I think that there's this way that violence almost like de, it like, it like unmoors women from their mm. gender identity in the same way that queerness has historically, where people have been like, queer women, like they're not quite women exactly mm-hmm. and violence actually has been treated very similar historically. So it was a lot of stuff like that where it was a lot of like unmooring from gender identity and also this idea of like the utopia um, that makes, that makes like the conversation like weirdly hard and difficult to articulate.
0: Well, and you brought something up that, that I was very interested in um, because of course, aside from the fact that you shared a gender identity, there were other power dynamics at play in your relationship with the woman from the dream house. She was experienced in relationships with women and you were inexperienced. She was white, you were Latina. The world treats your bodies differently. And she used many of those things against you. Can, can you talk about that and how that sort of played in?
1: Yeah, I mean the first thing in particular was a, was a big part of it and again is one of those things where it, it became, it, it feels very clear in retrospect and it feels clear as like a person who's now in her 30s, looking back on this. Like, if someone was telling me this now, I'd be like, ah, I feel like I understand this perfectly. But yeah, like I, she was my first girlfriend. She's dated a lot of people, and they're usually her. First, she's usually their first girlfriend, which is like not a coincidence. You know, that's actually very traditional, very sort of classic, because it creates a kind of power dynamic, right? You have people who are newly out of the closet, or people who just don't have a lot of experience in that area, and and she would tell me like we get these like really like big blowout fights that were so intense. And she would say to me, you're, you're new to this. This is what it's like to date a woman. Like, you're just, you're just you don't know. Like, cause I was like, I've never fought this way about anybody like, like this before. And she was like, it's just, this is what it's like. I know, you wouldn't know, but I know. And you know, I had grown up, you know, my father used to say stuff to me, like, ah, uh, women are so emotional, and you know, like that sort of language, that essential language we give, that we, 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 people put to like women, and I used to tell them it was full of shit, but I had actually <laughs> like internalized a lot of it, I think, like way more than I actually expected that I had, and so I began to think like maybe she's right, like I just don't understand, like I, I, I am new to this, like maybe this, they're just really different, you know, um, like the sex is better, so why wouldn't the, you know, why wouldn't like the fighting be worse? or some like weird, and then, and then that makes no sense, right? And like, look, but like looking, at, like looking at it from like the, you know, it's like, ah, like she was just using that as a kind of sort of leverage and sort of banking on the fact that I wouldn't know the difference or I wouldn't be able to tell or that I would believe her.
0: At one point in the book, you say that abuse in queer relationships is often a reflection of internalized homophobia and an analogous way to abuse in heterosexual relationships as a reflection of sexism. How did you come to that understanding?
1: Well, I was thinking a lot about, you know, how in sort of, so, so, you know, talking in the book a lot about how sort of classic, like the way you sort of we classically think of domestic violence is happening, which is usually like heterosexual, like the people are involved are straight, white, the victim is female, the, the perpetrator is male, um, and sort of part of that sort of stereotype or part of that sort of understanding involves a level of sexism, right? It's sort of like, you know, like there's a kind of power structure that's being sort of um, ridden in order to like get to, to, to the sort of the, the goal or the point, right? Um, and so you know, when I was reading up about what made sort of queer DV like, different, it was interesting because like one of the things that I was reading a lot was like, you know, there's this added threat if like and like a thing, and this this did not apply to me as I was like already out when I was dating my girlfriend. But like if you are a person who is like trans or or queer and in the closet, and you know your employer finding out or like someone else finding out your family, like that's a risk that you're right, and like that a thing that will often happen is like queer abusers will say to their victims like I'm gonna tell people, like I'm gonna you know I'm gonna out you, I'm gonna you know and like make a lot of trouble for you. This also happens with like undocumented people. So there's like an entire sort of branch of like DV that involves like people who use like the immigration status of their partner against them. And that's like like people who like aren't able to get, I mean, it's it's very, very bad. So people who just learn how to kind of leverage, who learn how to leverage what they can, and that can be, so that can look like racism or is racism, it is homophobia. Like it's like leveraging, these, even if the person themselves also belongs to that category, like, I still mm. believe that, like, it's, it's leveraging that prejudice or le- leveraging that sort of thing against, against the victim. Mm.
0: I have an audience question here. Um, it says, I underlined your note about Bay Area biphobia with a shout of recognition. <laughs> Can you talk about your experiences here? Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> hmm yeah, I can. I mean, so I lived here from 2008 to 2010. I mentioned in the book very, very briefly that yeah, I, I thought to myself because I, I came here, I was so little. I was 20, 22 when I moved here, and I was like, I'm gonna go to the Bay Area and I'm gonna date ladies. And I was like so excited. <laughs> I was like just beside myself
0: because I was kind of
1: a late bloomer, and in in that way, and was feeling very, and I felt very like excited. And then I got here and I, every lesbian, every person I met was like, every lesbian I met was like, oh, you also like dudes? Like, absolutely not. And I drove me into the
0: arms of tech bros. Oh, no! Oh, no. <laughs> Three of them in a row! I'm so sorry. <laughs> it, was bad. it was a bad time, bad time
1: in my life. Um, yeah, so anyway. So it was a dark time. Uh, I, I, hope, I hope it's not still like that. Like, I, I very much hope so, because I've told people some of that, and they've been like, oh, I never had that experience. I was like, well, in 2009 on OkCupid, I guess search one's choices were, I don't know, anyway. And that's what happens when you're, when you're biphobic. You drive perfectly nice queer ladies into the arms of terrible tech bros. It's,
0: it's terrible, it's terrible. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> odd transitions. <laughs> so in the narratives about queerness and queer rights that we so often see in the dominant heteronormative culture, the focus is often on the right of queer people to marry, or at least it, it was before 2015, and there's still some, still a lot of that around. And yet so many other more fundamental rights, ones that protect us from violence, both at the institutional and individual level, are left out of the discussion. Do you think there's a relationship between the focus on these positive freedoms, the freedom to love, to marry, and the absence of resources on and information about queer domestic violence?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I'm sure there's a connection. I mean, I think, it also depends like which sort of way you're, because I feel like the reason that straight people don't think about queer DV is because white people don't think about queer people very much at all. <laughs> and there's like a lack of sort of caring or understanding about an issue that does not affect, that doesn't sort of directly affect you. So that that I feel like, but I feel like, and then within the queer community I feel like I mean, I talk in the book about, because like all this was happening to me while sort of marriage equality. Like I had actually lived in the Bay Area when P- Prop 8 was passed. Then I moved to Iowa where gay marriage was legal, which is like very confusing. And then, <laughs> and then I remember like this conversation sort of happening and like I, in the book, the day, the day that I finally broke up with my, with my ex in the book is the day that Obama was like, actually, I think gay people can't, should be able to get married. Like, because like Biden had said it kind of by accident and then Obama said it anyway. So like I was thinking a lot about how like you know this was going going on while I was sort of negotiating all the stuff in my life and thinking about how on, in some level I think I had internalized this idea like you can't say bad things about your particular specific gay relationship while lots of people are trying to like get this thing that's like precariously like sort of hovering on the edge of the, of a knife or whatever um and I think this desire for like respectability this desire to like show like not, not even just that, like, because it, because it should never be about that, right? It should be like, we're human beings, we deserve human rights, right? Like, that, that like, nothing else is relevant. Like, you, to, but like, people want to say like, well, we're the best. Like, we're not, we're not even just like okay. We're like, better than straight people. Like, we have like, I mean, a thing that people would talk about a lot is how like, there are fewer instances of like child abuse in like queer families who've adopted children than like mm. than like straight families. And that I I think is true, but also then when like those that lesbian couple uh, like two years ago killed their five black adopted children, that white the white couple, people like really kind of got themselves tied into knots over that because we had like so long I think for so long internalized this narrative of like gay parents are perfect. when if I was like no like they can still be racist, they can still be bad parents, like they can still be a lot of things. Like just because you know. But the point is that of course it doesn't matter. Like you should be able to marry regardless, or like adopt children or whatever, regardless of. What you've, how you've proven yourself to be, like, better or superior in some way. Um, and so it's, en- it's, it's enough to be, like, I'm a human being. I deserve human rights. Like, I don't need to be perfect or even good, right? Um, sorry, I don't know if I actually answered
0: your question. Did I answer your question? <laughs> you gave a good answer. Great, fabulous. <laughs> fabulous, <laughs> excellent. Well, I mean, I think this is... I, I found myself so fascinated uh, as a bisexual woman myself in a lot of these issues about how we fail each other as queer people. And I actually, I was talking to Amber beforehand about the fact that I was introducing that question with as a bisexual woman myself, because you feel this need to defend yourself and Mm -hmm. to defend your, I felt this need at least, to defend myself and my interest in this topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Because we are so sensitive to how the outside world perceives us and to the ways in which any flaws or faults are going to be weaponized against us and it it prevents us from acknowledging them and protects abusers within our community yeah.
1: and i've i've also i should say like i've also had multiple people like i've done interviews and like i've had more than one person who belongs to a community that i am not a part of say like oh this exact thing happens in my community mm-hmm like about like sexual violence or like whatever, where it's like, this, so this is not just a problem, this is a problem like yeah. across, because it, right, it's like if you're like in a community that like is constantly being sort of marginalized or threatened or oppressed, you wanna be like, we are perfect, We just please, please let us live, please let us have rights, mm. please let us do the things, but like then yeah, then people get away with like really bad behavior um, because everyone's so desperate to like keep a straight face and like be respectable yeah. um, and it really creates a lot of and then it creates these like victims that are sort of twice victimized, right? Like they're already suffering from like whatever the dominant culture is doing, and then they also have been like hurt by somebody, and they have no recourse, they have no way of, deal- of
0: like handling it. Yeah, and and I mean, for you writing this book, were you anxious about confronting that truth about oh, addressing yeah. it? Oh yeah, kept me awake every night. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you see a way out? <laughs> <laughs> wow, thanks for that softball of a question. I really appreciate it. <laughs>
1: Um, do I see a way out of this terrible bind that was created in the centuries before my birth? Um, great, I, don't, I truly have no idea. I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I am a generally actually a fairly cynical person about the state of the world right now. Not to be. Um, well, yeah, but I actually did an event recently where someone asked me about how I felt about, like, did I think that, like, Me Too was gonna change things? And I said no, but, like, over 15 minutes while, like, cursing a lot. And then <laughs> afterwards, this woman was speaking out to me and she was like, I'm really distressed because you're so young, but you're so pessimistic. And I was like, yeah, but, like, the world has given me absolutely no reason to believe that I'm incorrect. You know, like, I, I think that people who have power don't wanna give that power up. I think that there are always gonna be ways in which groups, are sort of, I mean, you know. When the boot is on your neck, you might be able to get it off in a short term, or get it off for something, but it's always going to come down for something else. Whether you know, whether you're like a person of color, or mm. a woman, or a queer person, or a trans person, like there's always going to be people with power, t- like sort of trying to sort of shape your, tell you what your experiences are, and tell you what you need and don't need, and what you deserve and what you don't deserve. And like, I don't think that's ever going to change. And so I feel like this dynamic is sort of entrenched. I don't, I can't imagine it changing. In a, I mean, I can imagine like for individual people maybe,
0: but not for like, not in like a large sort of scale cultural way. Can we talk about queer villains? Sure. So there's a, there's a section where you talk about the problem and pleasure and audacity of queer villains, which I love that phrase. Can you expand on the way that this sort of notion of queer villainy and the problematization of it in the queer community played in your experiences?
1: Yeah, so as a lifelong Ursula lover, <laughs> Ursula's my absolute queen, I feel like the idea of the queer villain, like like how often, like watching movies, watching films and seeing how often like vi- Villains are coded queer in some in some way, and that's not just true. I mean, Disney does it a lot, and sort of most notorious, pretty notoriously, but like sort of historically, that you know, it's it's sort of its own its own trope, right? Um,
0: There's a meme going around on Twitter after the Grammys about. Like somebody had tweeted, "Why do all the Grammy winners look like uh, look like Disney villains?" And someone else retweeted it and said, "Because you're used to queer coding villainy." Oh, <laughs>
1: I did not I have not seen that. That's so interesting. Yeah. So I, so so I feel like, and I feel like it's interesting because, you know, I feel like there's a thing, you know, there's sort of like levels of critique you can have around that. So people can say it's fucked up that like Disney makes all those villains, qu- qu- that codes them all queer, and it's like, sure, that's fucked up because. When you have almost no, when you have no queer characters anywhere, and the only queer characters that we're ever getting, the mainstream is ever giving you are these like truly villainous characters, mm-hmm. then yes, that creates like a weird association that like if you're not thinking about it too hard, is actually quite hard to untangle and unpack. But I've always really loved queer villains. I actually find them quite inspiring and empowering um, and really pleasurable and delightful. And they're so like sinister and evil and they always look real good.
0: They own their know? power.
1: And, and I really admire that and sort of appreciate that. And so I think, so yeah, so I talk in the book just about how like I, I'm really interested in, it, it becomes less of a problem when you have like, lots of queer characters. When you have lots of queer characters, like having a queer villain is just like it's like, well, that you know, everyone's, you know, there's there's so many of them, like you don't, it's not like it's like the only characters you ever see are gonna be villains. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. So I just find them really interesting and, and I think that returning to them, their potential, like saying like, it does not remove their humanity for them to be evil. Like they actually are like their own sort of, I don't know, like I think it comes back to this question of like, isn't it okay to say like, you know, people are human and that's enough, you know? and then letting them be whatever they, they can be whatever they're gonna be, but they still deserve like respect and, I don't know. I don't know, I'm like, bring on the queer villains, I don't care, <laughs> I wanna them burn everything to the ground, I really, I truly do.
0: Um, so we're piling up audience questions here, so I'm gonna ask a few of them. Right. Um, that one we already asked. Oh, I think this one's really interesting. So you, ta- you said that the writing, process of writing this really wasn't cathartic, it was very hard and sort of wrenched out of you. What was the revision process like?
1: I mean, it was more of the same. Um, I mean, writing this book was I wrote this book in a very weird way, um, because I, I was writing it sort of in bits and bits and pieces, and then I sold like a very, very skeletal draft to my publisher. And then when I returned to the book, I added like 150 or 170 pages to it and then cut a lot of things. So there was just like this many phases of like adding and cutting and moving and slicing. And then like I would feast and famine. Like I'd work for like six months. Like like the final push for this book was six months nonstop of working on it. But Before that, I was doing it in like little bits and pieces. So it was sort of a weird process. But yeah, it was a difficult editorial process. It was difficult. You know, um, things would happen like I, there was at some point where I was going through the book, like I had to put it in order, and I like burst into tears, Ugh. and I met my editor had to do it for me because I was too <sighs> upset. Um, and then at some point, like I um, had this moment where I was editing the book, and I realized there was a scene in the book where I was walking in a certain direction, like across a house, and it didn't affect what was happening in the scene, but like. I realized as I was rereading it, that I suddenly was inverting the direction I was walking and the fact that I couldn't remember. and then at this point, like both seemed equally plausible. and I and I got myself worked up into a real frenzy because I was like, why can I not remember what fucking direction I was walking? like why does but do both of them feel potentially correct in my mind? and sort of having to confront, like memory and the way that memory functions, and the way that trauma affects memory and affects the brain, or like this other thing that happened where my my spouse read the book and she was there for some of the events of the book, and so, you know, she read it and she said this thing. She said to me, "Oh, I thought it was really interesting how you didn't include that time that we went to the Petco and we saw all those ferrets and you made all the jokes about the ferrets." And she was like, telling me this like story. And then as soon as she said it, I remembered it, but I had, I had jettisoned it from my brain. Like, if she had not said it, I would have never remembered that story as long as I lived. Like, my brain had just been like, cool, we're gonna save either like the entire plot and music of Space Jam, or this memory, <laughs> which I still know, because my brother loved Space Jam as a child. Or this like memory of the ferrets and like my brain was just like, ferret memory gone.
0: You know? <laughs> like, it just like dismissed, it. just out into, into the ether. Probably the right choice, but. Probably, I don't know.
1: But so it's, it's, just a, it's like, yeah, so I feel like even editing it, like I was like, the mind is so weird and like, you know, editing fiction is like, you can just sort of, you can be like, oh, this isn't working and I'm just going to like snip, snip, re-stitch, do whatever, add a, whatever. Like you can just sort of do it. But with non-fiction, it's like you just have this, you just—it's ha- like you know—you have—you have fewer. T- it's like harder. It's like a higher. I think it's like a, I think nonfiction is more difficult because you just have this thing taken away from you, this ability to just like make shit up, which is like a pretty powerful tool, right? that um, can fix a lot of problems. And when you aren't able to do that, you suddenly have to like, you know, or like account for like gaps, like you know, in a, you know, like like if you're like you don't remember what color the chair was, well, you're shit out of luck. And like, what you gonna do about that? You know, do you not mention the chair? Do you just say like I don't remember the color? Do you make something? You know, there's like all these sort of like. It's just very weird, it's just like a very weird process. So yeah, the process of editing it was like, emotionally difficult, technically difficult. It was horrible, I don't know how anyone writes more than one non-fiction book about themselves. It's quite, ter- it's quite terrible.
0: <laughs> uh, so you brought up memory, and the role of memory in abuse, and, and you were talking right now about the way that your sort of experience of trauma caused you to forget things, but the, the woman from the dream house would frequently also tell you that she didn't remember the horrific things that she had done. And yeah, top, what did that feel like? Well, I mean, obviously terrible, but I,
1: you know, I think what's so interesting is, yeah, so there's, a, there's a series of scenes in the book of like these very sort of violent, scary things, which would sort of be followed by her saying to me that she didn't remember them happening. And at the time, I remember desperately searching for an explanation that, that would make her not accountable for what had happened, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Like I kept thinking about how like, there's always like, you know there's like like, that scene in like, I don't know, like a movie where like somebody starts to get really, they start yelling and then they like collapse and then you find out that they have like a brain tumor or something and you're like, oh it explains the Mm -hmm. thing that, oh there's an explanation, there's an explanation that is like not their fault. Like that's like a very sort of narrative trope that like exists in the world. And I was looking for that, like I was looking for an explanation for what had happened that absolved her of responsibility for what had happened because all the alternatives were too terrible. And the question of did she really not remember or did she just tell me she didn't remember, I'll never know the answer to that question. And for a long time I thought to myself that that I needed to know, that I needed some way to, to know the truth of it, but I think part of writing this book was like realizing that there were a lot of things that I wanted to know that I needed to come to peace with the fact that I would never have the answer and I would never know, and um, that things will some things will always be inaccessible to me, and there are some things that I can only guess at and only sort of posit and like, you know, and that sort of that. So I feel like I feel like there was a lot of a sort of process of both like experiencing it was like desperately trying to find a solution and like writing the book probably the healthiest thing I did most of me writing the book was not healthy at all but the probably the healthy thing I did was like having to sort of come to this piece about like what I could and could not know um because like I'm a writer I want to know everything you know I'm, that's like this my nature it's like I'm you know people are curious and like you want to have explanations you want to have like yeah. you know and it's maddening to not know
0: but yeah well and I think especially for an experience like that it's we want explanations. We want... But we want,
1: it, we want them for, like, personal reasons, but also, like, we just... That's, that, like, this like we don't like a mystery. We want mysteries to be solved, right? Can you imagine if, like, you read, started a mystery novel, someone got murdered, you read the entire book, and you find out that the... You didn't ever find out who actually got... Like, who the murderer is. I mean like, there certainly is a kind of novel that would do that, and actually I sort of admire that very much, but if you're reading, a, like, a traditional mystery novel where, like, that was the expectation, at least at the end, they're like, sorry, we don't know. You'd be like, what the fuck? And you would, like, throw it across the room, right? And I feel like that's, that's You know, that's, like, the you have to just, like, we want to know. We want an explanation. We want to know why things happen, like, but honestly, like, it's, like, the question of why is actually kind of irrelevant in this case, and I think, because it's not about why. It's about what happened. What did that mean to me? What is the effect that it had on me? You know, that's that's what's relevant, not, like, why did she do it? Because, like, I was, like, I don't know. Was it because it was easy? Hmm. Was it because I was, you know was like an easy mark. I have no, I mean, I don't know. I just don't know. And I like, again, in the book, I like posit, like, what was it? And I like, just give like lots of possibilities and like, but like, I don't know. I'll never know.
0: Mm. Another audience question. How did you come up with the narrative structure that you land on? And did you ever consider alternatives?
1: Um, so when I try, when I first started writing the material in this book or trying to write it, I was trying to do it in a fairly straightforward way and it was not working. Like everything I wrote was really bad. And I remember a friend of mine, as an editor, reading something I had written for, that I, I said, can you look at this? And she, she, I gave it to her and she got back to like a week later and she was like, look, okay, here's the thing. She's like, you're a good writer. Like these sentences are really beautiful. You're a good writer. But the person in this essay, like it's been a week since you handed this to me, like you are already different than the person in this essay like you're moving, like you're moving through it, like you're you're in the middle of the shit, right? And you're continuing, and so like to try to like pin down what you're thinking, it's interesting, but like is it good? No, because you're just you're trying to like you're still figuring it out, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so I think that was like actually a really valuable, like a very valuable sort of piece of advice, a really valuable observation, and yeah, because when I tried to write about it in a straightforward way, it wouldn't work. And then one summer I was teaching. So Iowa City has this really awesome, like, nerd youth writing camp that's like <laughs> phenomenal, and like I would have murdered to have gone to as a child. Like, um, it's for high schoolers, and so when I teach, I teach usually using genre as a lens because I'm really interested not just genres, I mean genres also, but like not just like science fiction and fantasy and horror, but also like, like how genre is a set of expectations, right, that are established for readers. And when you have genre, so, like, if I say to you, like, this book is realism, but then a dragon comes through the window, you'd be like, wait a minute, like, this is, <laughs> you said it was realism, but there's a dragon, right? And that wouldn't work. So, like, genre is about, like, what can a reader expect from a world? And then when so when, when those things are established, then that gives the author the power to, like, blow up the experience or, like, invert it or, like, play with mm-hmm. it or tug on it or do something, right? Um, and so I was talking a lot about genre with my students, like, every single day, and I was spending all my downtime just walking around. And I remember walking around and, and thinking about genre. I, also when you teach, you get to articulate stuff out loud that you usually don't get to sort of say out loud. You just sort of usually internalize it. And so yeah, I was just sort of thinking about what I had been talking about that day. And I was like, I wonder if like a haunting, like haunted house story would be like actually the way to tell this. But like nonfiction, like not actually like a, like a novel or something like that, like an actual. And then I was sort of well, why not just why okay or like the gothic. But then I was like, well, what about like science fiction or what about, like a generation ship or epic fantasy or something? And then eventually I was like, oh, I could just do like all of them, and, then, <laughs> <laughs> and just use them as these like lenses. And, and it, it was like it was just the it was like the eureka moment I needed because like then I just wrote like a draft like it just came right out of me, you know, which is usually a sign that I've like hit upon either like the correct form or the correct question for whatever it is I'm trying to figure out. Like, I feel like whenever I'm in that, in that zone, it means that I've like asked some correct, or I've, 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 I've lit upon some something that was correct. And so in that case, it was just the right form. And then after that, I was just, I mean, and then the book, I mean, that was, that was it, that was the process.
0: All right, so let's talk about the Gothic novel. Sure. And uh, I was really excited, because you talk a lot about Shirley Jackson, who mm-hmm. I love, because how can you not? <laughs> and I just was curious to hear you talk about any influence that her writing has had on yours? Oh, so much. I'm a, I'm a bit of a Shirley Jackson. I really love her. Um,
1: Again, how can you not? How can you not? If you haven't read her, you must. The Haunting of Hill House is a perfect novel, and it's so scary. Oh, it's so scary. It's so good. Um, yeah. So Shirley Jackson, she's really interesting to me for a lot of reasons, and one of them is that, you know, she wrote. I mean, her stories were about women in these very specific circumstances, like women who were very sort of dissatisfied, and it like mirrored a lot of her own sort of experiences in her life, and actually her biogra- the biography that Ruth Franklin did a few years ago is really excellent, and I highly recommend it if you have any interest. This is how I know I'm getting older because I actually like biographies now. <laughs> <laughs> At point I was like, never, and then I, now I'm like, wait, why don't I want to read that biography, of Sheila <laughs> Jackson, I'm like, oh, good lord, okay. Um, but yeah, no, so it's a really good biography. It's really beautifully written. It's, it's great, and very thoroughly researched, but like, yeah, there's something about um, the way that she writes about women and and their own dissatisfaction mm-hmm. that I find very instructive, because it's like one of those things where I, I feel like sometimes people will say a thing, but they think it's a criticism of a, an author, which is like, this book is just like her other book, or like. It's the same book over and over again. Or like, my God, can't they just write a story that's not about whatever? And it's like, no, because clearly that's the thing they're obsessed with and that's the thing they're trying to get right over and over. And I feel like with Shirley Jackson, it's like this, you're just tracking this woman through her own like, anger and like, simmering, seething, very intelligent, very very like, intense dissatisfaction. Um, and that's how I feel all the time. You know, like, I feel, I'm mad a lot, and I'm, I am, I feel like I, I spend a lot of my time having a lot of feelings and thoughts that I'm having difficulty putting language to and then trying to put language to them. Um, and I think that was a thing that she did as well, and, and and, to, and you know, and she's the master, I mean, I'll never, I mean, she's an, she's an influence, like, I'll never, <laughs> I'll never be Shirley Jackson, but that's, I'm okay with that, because she, she lived, and she was great, you know? Um, and I do also, like, have some very direct influences, like, the resident from my first book is a very like strong Haunting of Hill House influence. And I have a short story blur that's not in a collection. It was in Ten House a few years ago. It's probably going to be my next book. Um, and that's actually like a very direct, like it's a conversation with my favorite story of hers, which is called The Tooth, mm. um, which is this amazing short story that's in the lottery, like the book, The Lottery, that The Lottery is from, the famous short story of hers. And it, it's this really terrifying story about a woman who her husband, she has like an abscess tooth and her husband like puts her on a bus to go to New York City to get the abscess tooth removed. And she's on like tons of painkillers. And this man in a blue suit appears and begins to speak to her. And then she goes and has this dental surgery. And as soon as the tooth is taken out of her mouth, it's like her whole identity goes with it. And so right afterwards, she goes to a bathroom and she's like washing her face. And then she, with all those other women at the sink. And then she stands up and she doesn't know which face is hers, like in the mirror. Mm. Um, and she goes, well, "I hope it's not that dreadful woman in the corner who's like all pale and, and drawn." And then she's like, "Oh no, it is." <laughs> 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 and then and then she like dumps out her like purse with like all her money and everything that's. There. And she just sort of walks out. It's like this really disturbing story. It's so good. And so and so I have like a. And so I wrote a short story about a woman who is on the way. On the way to visit her abusive girlfriend, she's on the road and she stops at a rest station, or like a rest stop on the side of the road, to wash her face and just take a break. And she's wearing glasses and she's very nearsighted, like me. And when she takes her glasses off and she washes her face, she goes, "Hey, her glasses, her glasses are missing." And she's trapped in this like rest stop, and this man in a blue suit appears and begins to speak to her. And so, so it's sort of like instead of the tooth, it's the eyes. You know, it's I mean, I. Anyway, but I, like, fully, like, ripped off, like, a lot (laughs) of that, poor Shirley. Um, Because, yeah, that man in the blue suit was very interesting to me, and he
0: appears in a lot of her stories and is very creepy, so it felt interesting. Amber, do we have time for one more? Okay. Okay. This is great, because you're leading directly into all of my favorite questions. Oh, great. Um, So as I was reading in the dream house, I kept thinking back to two stories from Her Body and Other Parties, Mothers, which is a story about an abusive relationship between two women that results in a child and the resident, which uh, in which sort of past and present real and imaginary start to merge for a writer at an artist's residency. And she also gets very sick in ways that mirror the physical effects that you that you mentioned in uh, one of the passages that you read. Can you talk about what it's like exploring the experience of abuse and its effects in fiction versus nonfiction?
1: Yeah. I mean, so this is actually a thing that isn't just, it isn't just sort of central, centralized to abuse narratives. I actually find it much easier to write nonfiction about stories, about things I've already written fiction about. So mm-hmm. it's true for this book. So for this book, there were a series of short stories. Short, full short stories and also moments in other stories that sort of were me, I think, kind of mentally prepping for the memoir. This is also true of the story that I have in the collection called Eight Bites, which was my, a story I wrote about the fat body and about gastric bypass surgery. And it was in, a story that I had to write in order to write this essay of mine called The Trash Heap Has Spoken, which came out in Guernica a couple of years ago. And it was like I needed to like organize my thoughts about my feelings about the fat body in a short story where I had like all these tools and I could write like a ghost story or do whatever I wanted and then I then I could write the essay. Um, so yeah, so I actually find having, which is not like a very efficient way to write nonfiction, like it's like the least efficient, it's like oh I have to write a whole other thing that is not the thing and then I can write the thing I want to write, which is like Jesus Christ, you know? Um, but. But yeah, but that's just, apparently that's my process. And it's also like, because I write fiction very fast. Like, I'm very, very fast. It's insufferable, and if there are writers in this audience, I apologize. (laughs) My friends have told me, like, Carmen, shut the fuck up, because I'm like, (laughs) fiction is easy for me. I, I do it really quickly. Like, it's this very, like, I find it very like playful and fun and never difficult or enraging in any way. Like I love it. But nonfiction makes me wanna just break everything. It makes me wanna just like put my foot through a window. Like it is, nonfiction is difficult. It takes me forever. I write like one good essay a year maybe. Because for me, nonfiction is such a different mental process and it requires an organization of my thoughts. Because I feel like fiction, it's a a little more loose. You can kind of just kind of be like, it's like, you know, you can kind of be like, Oh, there's no answer, but it's fine. It's fiction, it's not a big deal, you know? But like nonfiction, it's like I feel this need to like really be like kind of getting everything kind of pulled together in this really, really tight way. And that's hard, it's really hard. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, not an efficient way of doing it, but definitely I feel like, I'm guessing that at the end of my career, any nonfiction that I write, you'll be able to like trace directly to like a story or a series of stories. Like I feel like that's like some, some, if I'm very lucky, some like student is going to be like, aha, look what I've done. Like, all, <laughs> I can track all of that. But like, it's, you know. And they'll find this, I like, a, a trip of this interview, and they'll be like, I knew it. I absolutely knew it.
0: So. Dissertation fodder. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So. Well, on that note, thank you so much again. Carmen Maria Machado, everyone. Thank you. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month during the second hour of Talk of the Bay, 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. This episode features an in-conversation event produced by Amber Clark for Kepler's Literary Foundation and engineered by Lanier Sammons, who also wrote our theme.